Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, crafts reporter for IndieWire. My guest today is James L. Brooks, who has probably been involved in some way as a writer, producer, or director on something you love. In television, he created The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi, and he's been a producer on The Simpsons since 1989. As a director, he's responsible for classics like Broadcast News and As Good As It Gets. And as a producer for other directors, he had a hand in Big, The War of the Roses, Jerry Maguire, Say Anything, Bottle Rocket, and Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Today he's here to talk about Terms of Endearment, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year and is newly available as a 4K Blu-ray from Paramount. Terms of Endearment was Jim's directorial debut, and it's the kind of first film most filmmakers only dream of an artistic and commercial success that won him three Academy Awards for writing, directing, and producing. It's an extremely delicate movie tonally, a hilarious comedy about deeply serious matters, and I've always been curious how Jim pulled it off with so little experience. Thankfully, when I asked him to come on the podcast and fill me in, he said yes, so here's our conversation. So I watched Terms of Endearment again this weekend, and I've seen it many times. It feels like such an assured, confident um, debut. And I'm curious, you know, as far as I've been able to tell, you didn't have any directing experience before you made that movie. So were you, in fact, confident going in? And did you have a pretty good idea of what lay ahead of you from your TV work and writing starting over? I think I had innocence going for me, and I had naiveness, naivete going for me. Um, and, and, that, and that's a great help. You only get it once and it's a great help. And aside from that, I, you know, I had been a showrunner and, and, and that helps, and that helps enormously. There's, there's always this thing where you're sort of in the back and somebody's doing it and you say, you know what they should be doing now, you know what they should be doing now. And then the transition to it's you. And I had that transition. So that was helpful. Well, I was kind of shocked to read that you hadn't really thought about directing before you did Terms of Endearment. And I'm curious what it was that uh, made that something. Why, why did you jump into directing with that one? I never had any desire to direct. I mean, I never had it as one of my ambitions. Or, but I, I think I just couldn't let it go. I think I just had to continue it. And, you know, and, and there is a lot of directing that's an extension of the writing. I, I, think, I think for some reason, actors and writers have an have, have the easiest time with that transition into directing when you start in another profession. What was your experience like as a writer on starting over? Were you able to be on the set and observe Pakula on that? I, I was barred from the set my second day there because, because I was making faces at the actors if I liked it or didn't like it, but I couldn't help. And so, so and it was wonderful. It, it, the, 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 the wonderful director who I had picked for it Alan Pakula said to me, Jim, when you direct, you don't have to know everything. You need the illusion that you do. So, so I was barred from the set, but then he was great in allowing me in and um, editing. And Well, now, so with terms of endearment, I mean, you know, mostly I think of you as a writer of original screenplays, but here you're working with an adaptation from a great writer, Larry McMurtry. What, pre- what are the pleasures and what are the challenges of adaptation versus writing an original? It's a mixed bag. Um, Larry McMurtry, who I made a pilgrimage to, because I'd never been to Texas, he was the great Texan writer, and he had a bookstore in Washington, D.C. And I went there, you know, humble by the, by, by the job of servicing the book and adapting the book. And um, 
and I was paying this, you know, I, I, I was there seeking any guidance he wanted to give me, what to, you know, and he, and he threw me out sort of, and, and, and he, he, he was working the cash register of his bookstore. And he said, I did my book, you go do your movie. And, and, and it hurt, but it was liberating. And, and, and he was smart to have done it. We had great conversations afterwards. And, and it, was, it, was, it was too inhibiting before that. I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that you'd never been to Texas before because the movie, you know, that's such a key you know, strength of this movie is the whole milieu that it takes place in. How did you immerse well, yourself? Once, once I started working, I did go there and hang there and, and, and got a lot out of it, got the astronaut out of it. The research trip there, um, just just that that came from it. So when you say you did research trips, I mean, what do those research trips consist of? When you're going to Texas, who are you talking to, and you know, what kinds of things uh, are you collecting for yourself? Went to River Oaks, where where it was set, which is the the great suburb in Houston, and because they have these great oak trees, so it's actually about three or four degrees cooler in in River Oaks than Houston. And uh, and talking to women living alone there, uh, you know, mature women whose ch whose children are out of house, living there, and just it was um, it was everything. It was everything doing that. We mentioned the astronaut character, who I don't think is in the book, and it's sort of the movie's unthinkable without him. So, uh, where did that idea come from to put the astronaut in? What did you think? Why did you think you needed him for the movie? Well, in in the book, it was. It was her being forlorn, and her suitors were very elderly, crotchety men living the last of their lives, and uh, and that didn't. I didn't want to do that, and uh, and then I going to Houston. You you it didn't take long to before you bumped into former astronauts who had that kind of romance to them, and and um, and. And the minute I spoke to one of them, it was like um, exactly what I had to do. Now, uh, Burt Reynolds, who was in Starting Over, he claims that he was offered the role of the astronaut and that he didn't do it. And it's like one of the great regrets of his career. Um, is that in fact true? Was it written for, for Reynolds? It wasn't written for him. I, I couldn't get the money to make it. And if he would do it, he was biggest box office star at the time. I'd get the money to do it. And he said he'd do it. And just a short time before shooting was to begin, his his PR agent called me and said, Bert's decided to do something else, but he wants you to know he loves you. Well, it ended up being kind of a lucky break because you got Nicholson, who you made so many great I'd movies say, with. I'd yeah. say, I'd say. Yeah, you, you understated it. <laughs> well, what were your initial conversations with Nicholson like? Because he was, you know, at the time, probably one of the... I mean, you know, he was coming off of Kubrick and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I and mean, he was one of the greatest living American. I mean, he still is, obviously. But uh, what were your initial conversations like with him, and how did you get him to trust you as a first-time director? Uh, Deborah Deborah Winger knew him, and she was in it, and she got him to read it. And and without her, I don't think I would have gotten read by him. And um, and I, I hit the right time, and and he was, you know, we're. I mean, he's, I mean, yeah, they think he's the great actor of my life. And, you know, yeah, I, 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 you know, probably wouldn't have worked without him. I, as a matter of fact, I didn't have a second choice. I didn't know what I'd do. And I thought 
that what I do if I didn't get Jack Nicholson, which was very unlikely and very likely that I couldn't get him to read it, let alone get him to do it. And um, and I think I, would, I wouldn't have done the movie. Well, it's interesting because I, mean, I think the whole movie, you know, the casting is so delicate. And I mean, I read that originally you had someone else in the John Lithgow role. And, and again, this is one of those movies where you really can't imagine it without any of these people. And I mean, I'm wondering if even in a supporting part like Lithgow, do you think, do you think that would have made a, drast a drastically different movie if you had someone else there? Yes, yes, because yeah, there was something there was something where he had, where he had to be naive and sympathetic, though though it was this illicit affair and 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 and, and that's hard, and um and I, I there's a line he has where he called his wife Dottie. He was married and having an affair, you know, and it was the the one affair of his life, and just the way he said Dottie was like, and and um and. It's so funny. You need you need so many breaks, and you need. But I couldn't I couldn't get him. He was willing to do it, but he was doing something else, and he was unavailable. And there, Jeff Katzenberg was head of Paramount at the time, and and man, he he spent about forty eight hours of his life trying to shift the schedule of that other movie so he could do this. I mean, nonstop because it wasn't easy. There were locations involved. There were a lot of moving pieces, and he did it. Uh, well, the whole ensemble is terrific, and you know, obviously, I think of you as a great director of actors. And I'm curious, you know, you acted in one of my very, very favorite uh, movies of all time, Modern Romance, and I'm fourth billing, fourth billing. <laughs> and and uh, I was wondering what the experience was like being directed by Albert Brooks, and how that informed your approach as a director. Did you learn anything from being on the other side of it that helped you? understand actors or talk to actors or anything like that? I was the I was the actor from hell in a certain way for Albert. And we're about to work together again because I was the one I, I just let me do it one more time. I do that. I was the one at his trailer as he came to work the next day. I had an idea. You know, just the, uh, that was me as an actor. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm curious in terms of the tone that you set in this movie and on set and everything else. I mean, the, the other thing I really love about Terms of Endearment is the tone is very unique in that it's, you know, it never stops being funny. Even, you know, again, I watched the movie the other night and even though the last half hour of the movie is pretty grueling in some ways, there, there's also not a scene where it, where there's no scene without any laughs. And I'm curious for you, how you kind of, how you mod calibrated that delicate tone. I mean, is it in the writing? Is it in the conversations with the actors is some of it the editing is it all the above uh it was it was essential to me in every way you can use the word for every reason you could use the word that it be a comedy that the picture be a comedy because it wasn't a comedy it was a cancer picture and that's the, the way it was cast and that that was uh, you know that was part of the work and and of course you know and 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 now as an audience picture, that was, you know, that, that thank, thankfully that happened and it clocked its laughs. And I think now when people see it just at home or something, um, it plays as a different movie. It plays, I think, much more as a drama because you don't have that collective audience. And, 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 and it's a different movie, but not the movie I intended. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, I really, you know, the, and the structure of it is so interesting too. Like, I love the, 
the sort of the way you use the fade outs and, you know, the passage of the way you sort of uh, get across the passage of time is really interesting. Was that all built into the script or is that something you discovered in editorial? But my, the whole thing, the whole thing, well, first of all, you always, tone comes in post-production. It's always the challenge. It's what post-production is about. It's, it's humble before that task, you know, of finding the correct tone of the movie. I think it's everything. Um, but, but that, you know, it, it was, it was my conscious intention also to give it, um, to give it just that it's an epic in one person's life to sort of make it sort of that, that journey. Yeah. And the music helps a lot with that too. I, this is a, the music was, it was everything to find to, to Michael Gore, to get that pulse and to drive it forward. It's, it was a miracle. I, it is, I, I can't, there can't be a more extreme example of a score being vital to a movie, uh, uh, having a chance. I agree. It's almost like Jaws or something in terms of like, you can't imagine <laughs> the movie without the score. I mean, what, what kinds of conversations did you have with Michael Gore about what you wanted from the score or was it something that just energy and putting um, and casting us forward, just being forward, forward, always forward. And then, you know, coming into this as a director, I'm, I'm also curious how you handled things like there, there are a lot of scenes in this movie that because you've done them right, they look easy, but I know they're not easy. These things where you've got big ensembles sitting around dinner tables or the final scene of the movie where you bring most of the characters in the ensemble back and you're kind of really beautifully resolving or not resolving what's happened. And I mean, like I, like I watched that last scene and I think it's such a kind of miracle. There's so many great small moments with each, each of the actors has these just really touching, funny moments. And I'm curious how you orchestrate something like that as a director. The turn the name of was it Rothko, an artist that where, where all this stuff was very dark and somber. And there was an exhibit in Houston when I was filming there. And, um, and somebody called somebody and got me there the night before I filmed the scene we're talking about. And I got to sit there alone and just get sad isn't the word, just an existential bleakness if you're sitting there alone with his work around you. And it was, and it was the right mindset for me. And, um, and then we, and then we all showed up with that gravity in mind. And, um, and, and, and the, and I, I had, a, I had that backyard, which I had used before and, and, and it was just, you know, self-consciousness is something that always, not always, that, that invariably hurts the work. But in, in this case, the self-consciousness of doing this was, was very helpful. You also got, thinking about that last scene makes me think of how good the child actors in the movie are. And I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, Jack Nicholson in your movie and get a great performance, but... So another thing to get that kind of stuff out of kids. I mean, the scene where she says goodbye to her kids, they're both, the kids are terrific. And the one boy, so remarkable, the, the, the Teddy, played Teddy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just, and I was saying my, my, my great direction after he just did this scene beyond imagination was, how'd you do it? <laughs> 
So yeah, I guess I mean, that, that sort of answers my question in terms of directing kids, you know, like how, is there a difference in terms of the way you direct kids versus adults, or is it a thing of you kind of just have to let them go? I mean, is, is it about, is it about who you cast or is there a way you talk to them or? You know, there's a four-year-old in the movie too. And, and, and I think, I, I think when they're very young, it just, it's just, it just gives you, it gives the actors a because they're unpredictable. So that kind of immediacy you always want in a scene with actors happens automatically when there's a young kid in it for some reason. So I think I think that part's true. I remember how difficult the scene was where uh, the older boy acts out with his grandmother right near the end and, and, uh, and says something against his mother. And that was um, Shirley's intensity with the, with the, with the, with the boy that really delivered the scene. I mean, that, that she, that she had to be there for herself and she thought I had to be there for him. And, and, um, and, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it, you know, I, I think, you know, I think, you know, Shirley is, you know, if we say one of the five actresses, the greatest career in film, she's one of them. Well, it's amazing. I mean, she had a great career by the time she got to you, and then she's still making movies now. I mean, I, you know, I saw one a few years ago that she did with Mark Pellington, Last Word, and she was great in that. I mean, so she's still, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing career. Yeah. But I mean, as a first-time director, is there an intimidation factor working with somebody like that who not only has had a great career, but by all reports has a pretty strong personality? She, uh, she, she. I'm sure she won't mind my saying this, but uh, she came the first day having decided on a Texas accent and, uh, and wearing a belt buckle of Texas, this big to censure. And she was talking, you know, Texas and, um, and my heart sank and she had put work into it. And I didn't, and I, and I, and, and I, I didn't want it to be that regional. And, um, so we came back so we so I added some some voiceover dialogue that said she was from Boston and she was such a pro that once I did that she she just did it. And and what were your conversations like with your cinematographer in terms of the kind of guiding principles for the visual stocks? I love the like painterly look this movie has and I love that it's very restrained. Like you don't you don't move the camera for no reason. Like it's just a it's very very um just this very formal quality that for me just sucks me right in from the beginning. And I was curious how you arrived at that. It's, it's, you know, in my case, if you're very lucky, you have a template, you, so you're not talking in abstracts, you're not using words to describe pictures. And in this case, Norman Rockwell was, we just stared at his books. And in some cases, if he had, if he had a certain painting, we and we'd see the props in it, this, this, because he was Americana. And um, and if the, he had a salt and pepper shaker, we'd go and look for that salt and pepper shaker and use it in the movie. And that was great. That was great to have. And, you know, I'm curious in, in the editorial process, you know, how quickly did you know what you had? I mean, was this a movie? Because obviously this thing became every director's dream. I mean, it's sort of an, it's an artistic triumph and it's a commercial triumph. And, you know, now it's a movie we're still talking about 40 years later. Uh, when you were in the editing room, did you know what you had, or was it, uh, it was it a lot of arduous work to get there? You, you you never you know the experience is 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 to avoid something bad happening. I think 
when you make a movie, just to stop a mistake before it happens. Um, um, you know, one one piece of casting that's wrong, and and it's over, and you you know, and, and you start shooting a movie, and you don't know that it's all. You know, so I feel I feel um, I feel that extremely, and in and in fact, there was. Um, like with Gal, there was one replacement we made after we shot something. And I think it's the only time that has happened to me, but the movie wouldn't have worked unless we did that, unless he was available. And he wasn't available. I mean, it, it's just, you need some breaks. Well, and in terms of calibrating the comedy in the editing room, I mean, how extensive, like, who are you showing the movie to? Did you do a lot of test screenings? You have people you trust you show. How do you figure out if the comedy- Oh, test screenings. I, I believe in previews, I mean. You know, you, you know, they're agonizing, but they're, and I do, you know, I, I, I think in, with, I think with terms, I probably did six of them because I was long and I was cutting down according to audiences. And, and, and how did the success of the movie change your life and your career? I knew I'd be able to do my next, I knew I, I knew I could do another movie that people would let me do another movie and it could be what I wanted. I was very aware that, that I had, uh, that I, and I had a friend who used to tell me that. And, and and that you know that I you get to do you get one now you get what you want now use it well yeah is is that um, purely positive or is there any kind of terrifying paralyzing aspect to having that kind of freedom and knowing you can do whatever you want no in in this case for me it was not it was it was idyllic I you know uh, it it was I I just I just hung out with myself for a while till I figured out what I wanted to do next. I was open. It was, you know, it's, 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 it, it, it's wind in your sails. Uh, it's, um, and, and I, and I think even though, you know, I was very naive about everything, I think I was really aware of that. I was really aware that, you know, treat this right. Who knows if it comes again, you know? Yeah, well, you use the opportunity uh, beautifully by making broadcast news, which is a great movie. And since you mentioned Albert, we talked about Albert Brooks, I guess before I let you go, I have to ask as a fan of yours and as a fan of Albert Brooks, you mentioned that you guys are going to be working together again. Is that something you can talk about what you're going to be doing together? Just, by the way, I mean, I I'm probably I can't talk about it because they're probably doing negotiating the contract right now. But if you wait a couple of weeks, um, uh uh, but yeah, we're, I, I'm I'm going to start a movie in um, in mid February that that he's going to be in, and we oh, just got together on that. Yeah, but that I, I really just it's not finished yet. So, uh, well, I I can't wait. That's great news because uh, again, I'm a big fan of both yours, and uh, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me. Oh, thanks, thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, man. All right, thank you, Jim. Okay, take care. Be well. <laughs>